All right, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day three. Our reading for today is going to be in Genesis. Uh, That's going to be in chapter four, verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter six. And then Matthew, chapter two, verse 19, through the end of chapter three, as well as Psalm three. And just so everyone knows, I'm sitting here and my dog is next to me. So this is my best, uh, my, my big test as to whether my microphone picks up uh, my dog making dog sounds next to me. So just so you know, if you hear anything weird, it's not me, I swear. Okay, well, let's pick up in Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter four, um, where we left off. And uh, we saw how the entry of sin into the world is compounding and becoming worse and worse and worse. And we saw this uh, illustrated Primarily in the uh, in the killing of Abel by his brother Cain, and now um, as we pick up in verse seventeen, we're going to learn a little bit about Cain's descendants. And this is when you get in, start getting into some of that weird stuff in Genesis that everyone, uh, I think, it makes everyone's eyes kind of glaze over these genealogies. And of course, if you know anything about the Bible, this will not be the last time we run into genealogical stuff like so and so beget so and so and so and so beget so and so. Uh, and I'm going to point out a few things about the genealogies that we look at, we're going to look at today. And this is in particular two of them. So the first one is um, somewhat like a genealogy. It's it's a lot more narrative, you know, it's a lot more prose style, if that makes sense, than than we usually get for biblical genealogies. But this this deals with the descendants of Cain and uh, including including Cain, it gives seven generations. And uh, so Cain goes and um, you see the, the building of cities going on in, 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 his, uh, in his genealogy here, as well as other significant marks of human culture, things like uh, those who dwell in tents and have livestock, so animal husbandry, so pastoral nomadism and things like that. Um, you have those who play the lyre and pipe, so music. You have um, all kinds of things like that, the forger of instruments of bronze and iron, metallurgy. Uh, these are all in Cain's line. I'm not sure how much can be read into that. Um, but one thing that I think is very noteworthy is this individual whom the text kind of pauses to talk about. And this is a guy named Lamech. Lamech is the seventh from Cain. And Lamech is our first polygamist in the Bible. Uh, Lamech takes two wives to himself, Adah and Zillah, and, uh, and, and then you get, have this weird limerick that he says in verses 23 and 24. Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. Um, so the idea here is that, of course, as you might recall from yesterday's reading, when Cain was exiled, Cain was concerned about his life. And if anyone finds me, they're going; they they might kill me. I need protection here. And in case you're wondering, um, there there are some who do believe that there was life outside of the Garden of Eden, and there are other individuals in the world at this time that would be certainly suggestive of that. Although I don't know if it's uh, diehard proof, but certainly um, comports with that. But 
The uh, the interesting thing here, the comparison here, is that God says, "No, if um, you know uh, any, if if anyone kills Cain, back in verse fifteen, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold." So this this idea of seven in the Bible, we've already seen it with creation days, uh, a number of perfection, as it's sometimes called, this idea of of um, uh, of of just retribution, right? But here, Lamech says, Cain's revenge is sevenfold, my revenge is 77-fold. And I think the idea here, excuse me, is that Lamech has this twisted sense of retribution here, right? So sevenfold retribution is what God imposes. Lamech's like 77-fold. And you and anybody who's seen a cycle of vengeance sees how things escalate. Someone does wrong to you, you want to do even more wrong to him. And Lamech is kind of relishing in this. And not only that, but but notice the, the what he says right before that. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Okay? Again, this is this twist, twisted retribution. First of all, he wounded him, he strike, struck him, and so Lamech kills him. And then, not only that, but I think we're also not supposed to miss that this is this is like a song that he writes about it. He's celebrating these things. So he's celebrating this twisted um, sense of, of over-the-top vengeance that he has. And as we will see in a few minutes, um, this idea of violence filling the earth is very characteristic of what is happening here, what eventually precipitates the flood, pun intended, um, and, uh, and so, again, the idea is that sin is spiraling worse and worse and worse, um, uh, the, as vengeance often spurs violence in, in human civilization, this is exactly what we're seeing here. And yet we do also have points of hope here, because then what begins is the line of Seth. So, uh, this is not to say, by the way, that everyone in Cain's line went to hell automatically because they're in Cain's line or anything like that, right? This is, this is just the way the narrative is ordered, okay? But, um, but we, we have Seth born, who is, who is, um, Adam and Eve's next son, as far as we are told in the Bible. And, uh, Seth is born, and we have this very hopeful note in verse 26, um, uh, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So this is one of these glimmers of hope, right? You've got a lot of darkness going on in these first few chapters, but just glimmers of hope, right? We saw it with God uh, covering up the man and woman's um, shame, their their nakedness when they left the garden. We saw it in the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. We even see it in God having some mercy on Cain, putting a protective mark on him. And now here we have this note that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord, which is kind of biblical code for worship God in truth, right? This calling upon the name of the Lord is kind of like uh, the Old Testament version of what we would say of like, have faith in Jesus, right? Okay, moving along here, then we have we have Genesis chapter 5, and the thing that stands out to everyone here is, of course, this being the line of Seth, that you get these extraordinarily long lives. You've got people living, you know, 930 years, 912 years, 905 years, 910 years, these insanely long lives, and everybody's, did people really live that long back then? And I certainly think that that is a legitimate way to read the text. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking 
that. But I think it's also important to understand that sometimes there can be more than meets the eye with some of these biblical genealogies. And there's no like law of the universe that says that we can always figure out what may have been obvious to previous generations of um, of of God's people in this stuff. So in other words, like, well, let me let me explain what I mean. So first of all, it is true that oftentimes people groups can be referred to in biblical genealogies as being fathers and sons to others. Um, we, you'll see that with, we see that in Noah's descendants, for example. Okay, so it could be that we're talking about like something akin to dynasties or, you know, the, the uh, something like that or, or, or groups that existed in cer- at certain times and then spawned other groups. That's possible. Um, but another thing that I think is noteworthy here that is, again, this is one of these things where it's enough to tell us that there might be more than meets the eye here, but it's probably not enough to, but I don't think it, we, we know enough to say, uh, that, that this is what's act, what, what it actually means. It just is something that flags it as you're not crazy if you think that something other than literal lives of people are being denoted here. And this is what I mean. Look at all of the numbers in this chapter. Whether it's whether it's the uh, you know the um, the the age at which they father a son, or the age uh, uh, or how many years after they live, or the total years, and you will see that every single number in this chapter is a is a multiple of five. It sorry, we, let me explain it this way. It ends with either a zero, a five, a seven, or a two, and the only the the, the only number that's an exception to that is the total of Methuselah's life, which is nine hundred sixty nine years, um, in verse twenty seven. So it's they end with a five, a zero, a two, or a seven, and what that means is that every single number in this chapter is either a multiple of five or a multiple of five plus seven, and even Methuselah's total life in verse in, in verse twenty seven. You just add another seven, and you get up to 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 nine, right? You add that up from two, and the odds that that would be just a random sampling of numbers and ages from people's lives that you would hit that are extremely low. And so I think we have to say that even if we're not sure what's going on here, there's something suspicious about it that that warrants us saying that maybe something other than the literal lives of people living ultra long. Uh, for an ultra long time is what we're being told about. But the real theological import from Genesis chapter 5, I think, is twofold. So the first is this. Uh, Any way you cut it, these people are being portrayed as living very, very long lives. And it's it's surprising to us to read this, and it would have been surprising to an ancient Israelite, right? It's not like someone back then would have been like, oh yeah, of course, there's nothing weird at all about someone living 910 years. No, they would have said, wow, just as much as we do. But even dis- despite that incredible longevity, look how each of the paragraphs ends. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. So it's like, even even given this incredible... Uh, longevity, the specter of death and the judgment for sin looms over humanity. Remember what God warned Adam and Eve, and, Adam and Eve about: uh, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so you get that. So another very dark spot. Even though this is the these are the descendants of Seth, but then notice. Remember how in Cain's line we focused on the seventh, 
Lamech. Here, we focus on the seventh, and it's a man named Enoch. And Enoch, and notice there are Enochs and Lamechs in both lines, uh, but the Enoch in Seth's line um, is set apart. And what sets him apart? Is it that he's awesome? Is it that he goes and builds a city? Is it that he has many flocks and herds? No. Enoch walked with God. Okay, he walked with God, and there's that. That's actually the same uh, way of saying "walked" that we saw in Genesis chapter three, uh, with God walking in the garden. Remember, I said there that that denotes God's presence, right? So, like this kind of walking is uh, kind of like if I talk about my walk with the Lord, right? Uh, that's there. We have that biblical metaphor beginning, uh, but he walked with God, and that's what set him apart. And and as opposed to, and he died. And he was not, for God took him. Now, uh, does that necessarily mean that Enoch somehow was transported to heaven on a chariot like Elijah or something like that? I'm not sure we can say that. I think this may just be a purposeful kind of narrative way of, of, of setting him apart, that, that, that it wants to flag Enoch as special because his relationship with God, and in some way, his fate is different than the fates of all the others. Um, and then the other big thing, of course, is, is that Noah is born at the very end of this. Um, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest. That is what Noah's name means from the work of, um, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Um, okay, so then you get Noah's life. Now, at the beginning of chapter six, you get this very strange story about the sons of God taking daughters of men and, um, and um, and then you have these the the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And now there there's a variety of different interpretations of this passage. And this would be a very long podcast indeed if I took apart and weighed all of them. Let me just give you the two that I think are the most plausible. So the first one is that the term sons of God in the Bible and in the ancient Near East in general typically refers to uh, what we would call angels. So a divine council, God's other spiritual beings to whom God delegates uh, spiritual authority. Okay, and we've seen that in Matthew, right? This is a very normal biblical thing. Um, that they somehow had relations with human beings, human women, and um, uh, and that that that's what's happening here. Um, it's a little less clear how the Nephilim um, relate to them, right? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days uh, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, right? So it's like, are we supposed to think of the Nephilim as the offspring of this or not? Like the grammar of the verse is very ambiguous. It's not exactly clear. It could just be, oh, in those days also this, when this happened. Um, and in fact, that brings us to the other interpretation, which is that sons of God here are uh, earthly powerful kings and the taking of the daughters of man are is kind of like a, a ruthless, you know, taking women as plunder kind of thing. Um it is not uh, also uh, people who are referred to as sons of God are kings in the ancient Near East and in the Bible. So both of these have something going forward in terms of just the bare terminology. Um, but in my opinion, I actually kind of favor that second one where these are earthly kings. And the reason uh, is because both interpretations have their challenges. But the big challenge for the angelic interpretation, I think is the grammar of verses of, of verse four, okay? So 
again, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It makes the most sense typically. Uh, I'm not saying there's no exceptions to this, but if you say, look at that last clause, these were the mighty men who were of old. Who does these refer to? Okay, it seems to me that the cl- the closest thing in the sentence is there in that right in the wording of this verse that that can refer to are the sons of God. Okay, so it sounds to me like verse four is saying that the sons of God are the mighty men of old. Again, it's not impossible to read it differently. It just seems to me that if if I was didn't have a dog in the fight, um, that that on balance seems like the best way to take that. Those who are very persuaded of the angelic interpretation um, lean on the fact that sons of God is much more commonly used of of angelic beings, whereas what I'm saying is, uh, but I think you kind of have to read verse 4 in a weird way in order to get that to work walk on all fours, whereas I say that, the, for, to me, the, the wording of verse 4 is more compelling. Okay, that's a challenging passage. A lot of people are confused by it. I don't think it's essential to understanding what's going on in Genesis my personal opinion again, because then what happens is we get the flood. And we'll talk more about the flood tomorrow, especially since we've been on these chapters in Genesis for a while now, and I don't want to take up too much more time, but I want to note the big contrast here. So the Lord sees the wickedness of man, but then you have righteous Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Okay, this kind of like no, and like Enoch, Noah walked with God. Okay, um, contrasted with the with his generation, um, and this I think is very important. And we'll talk a little bit more about the ethics surrounding the flood tomorrow. But I just want to note here that we should not think of the flood as God judging innocent people who are just going about their business. That's not what the text says. If we're thinking that, we're not actually interacting with the biblical text. What does the Bible say about the people whom the Lord decided to judge in the flood? Wickedness was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of of man's heart was only evil continually. Uh, the Lord regretted he'd made man. It grieved him to his heart. Then go down a few verses. The earth is corrupt in God's sight, filled with violence, uh, corrupt, all flesh had corrupted the earth, right? This is not like God, people just minding their own business and God deciding to be mean, okay? But again, we've been on this portion of scripture for a while today. Let's pick up the flood tomorrow, okay? Let's go to these uh, to the chapters in Matthew that we're looking at today. And so we're going to finish up chapter two and go uh, through chap- the end of chapter three. And uh, let's let's just note a few things here, okay? So we pick up in chapter uh, 2, verse 19, okay? And uh, Joseph, directed by angels, as many have been so far in Matthew, uh, returns to Israel because Herod dies, Herod the Great dies. Uh, but nevertheless, his son Archelaus, or not his son, but Archelaus is reigning over Judah in his place. And um, because of that, he's afraid to go back to the area of Bethlehem and so goes back to Nazareth, where the family also has roots. Um, Nazareth, of course, being in the far north of what we would today call Israel, uh, what was then, uh, you know, uh, 
Palestine. This is the this is the district of Galilee, and um, uh, Nazareth is a very backwater little town. It's a little podunk, um, you know, um, place. It, it sometimes we we'll see this throughout Matthew, but we sometimes forget how like we sometimes don't realize rather how different Jewish life was throughout Roman Palestine. Uh, it's a lot different in the north than it is in a in a place like Jerusalem uh, than, than it was down in Jerusalem. And so they go to this place and they live and it says, and there you have another one of Matthew's fulfillment passages, so that it was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is, a, I think, a <laughs> A bunch of Matthew's fulfillment things, if you haven't gotten this from the previous days, right? A bunch of his fulfillment statements are very interesting to kind of look at. And this one in particular, and what is particularly wacky about this one is go ahead and look in the Bible for a place where it says he will be called the Nazarene or anything like that or anything, right? It's not, you're not going to find it. And... If you really look at Matthew's wording, you can kind of see, okay, I think I get it because the wording is very dis- is quite distinct from the way he quotes actual scripture, right? An actual line from scripture elsewhere, right? It's the prophets, right, who speak. It's it's not one prophet or anything like that, right? And so I think the idea what 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 I understand this to be saying is that the, to be a Nazarene, uh, okay, think of the beginning of John's gospel, or, or or in John's gospel, right? Like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, this this kind of uh, uh, cheeky attitude towards these these hicks that live in Nazareth, right? And so, I think what it's saying here is that the scripture's general portrait of David and David's great offspring and the Messiah and even the suffering servant, right? is that he will be unimpressive. That there's going to be, it's not as if he's going to come and just be totally awesome, have the purest pedigree and everyone's, you know, and he had the greatest upbringing, he's super educated and everything. No. Instead, you get things like you see in Isaiah 53. And this, of course, is a suffering servant passage, not technically a Messiah passage, although um, um, Jewish uh, older Jewish interpreters did see this as a messianic passage, but we're all very familiar with Isaiah 53. But look at how the chapter begins. He grew up like a he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Right? Doesn't doesn't seem like a winner, right? And I think that that's the idea: is that um, this is this is exactly the kind of background that we would expect of God's Messiah. Because remember Matthew's agenda here: this is the book of Jesus the Christ, the Son of David. And so he's almost preempting any objections, right? That oh, but Jesus was a no Jesus of Nazareth. What a nobody he was, right? Just look at him. He's from Nazareth. And then finally, we get John the Baptist preparing the way um, in chapter 3. Very significant. What does John the Baptist cry out? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. This is from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which, as we will see when we study Isaiah, is a very significant chapter because this is a great turning point in Isaiah. When chapter 40 
kicks off, this is when you really start to get these promises of God's going to bring his people back from exile, and he's going to restore them to this land, and he's going to show himself to be the only true God. This is where you get the probably what I think are the strongest monotheistic statements in the Old Testament, this part of Isaiah, these things like, I am the Lord and there is no other, there is none beside me, right? And and it starts off with this trumpet, prepare a way in the wilderness for the Lord, right? And uh, significant too is that if you look there in Isaiah 40 verse 3, when it says prepare a way for the, the way of the Lord, it's prepare a way for Yahweh, right? The, for uh, Jehovah, as it's sometimes said, right? This is the personal name of God. This is the one true God. And who is the Lord who is coming here in Matthew 3? Well, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Nazarene. Um, okay, and then... Um, uh, so Jesus goes and he's baptized by John. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. I think it's interesting that even Jesus's ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, so must ours be. And finally, a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And again, remember what people would have thought of when they heard son of God back then. Okay. That this is the Messiah. This is the king whom we have, whom we have waited for. And God is saying this from heaven. Okay, I'm just going to say a few words here about Psalm 3. Um, It is a very devotional psalm, and so I I think its meaning is fairly straightforward, but it is very encouraging, um, you know, because this is a psalm of David, so fleeing from Absalom his son. Uh, If you know what that is, then... um, then, then just think about that. If not, we will be learning about that when we study 2 Samuel. But essentially, his very own son sets up a coup and tries to take his throne, and David flees. And so this is a very low point of his life. So this is kind of a psalm when you're in despair to tag, right? How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And he's talking about the people his son is leading. They're saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy hill, from his temple in Jerusalem, right? And um, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves uh, against me all around. Uh, Interesting with this, again, with this thing with the Nazarene that I mentioned in Matthew, right? Like, David is not this um, unopposed, just whoop everyone's butt. No, like, David cries things like this in the psalm, right? Um, and, and that is characteristic of great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing on your people. Selah. Okay, well that's about it for today. Um, I will see you tomorrow when we talk about day four.